Hey, Alan Weiss on Comfortable Truth. You know something? Logic isn't all it's cracked up to be. There was a famous test once where scientists put a group of houseflies in a milk bottle with the open end of the bottle facing the interior of the house and the closed end against a window. And then they did the same with honeybees. And since scientists knew that honeybees were much smarter than houseflies, they wanted to time how much more quickly the honeybees would get out of the bottle than would the houseflies. What happened, however, in the face of this logic, was that the honeybees, being so smart, all congregated near the light, which was the window at the closed end of the bottle, and they all died there. They never investigated the other end. The houseflies flew around in random patterns, over and over, different patterns, and finally every one of them managed to find the neck of the bottle and flew out into the room. So, so much for being as smart as we think, and for thinking logic will always out. So what we think is logic often isn't. We complain all the time. We use rational complaint and rhetoric and diagnosis and analysis to complain about things that are irrational or not solvable, or irrelevant. I just came back from Nantucket, where I go every year in August for a couple of weeks, always to the same house. And there's always a guy there walking his dog on the beach who owns a house about a block or two farther down. And he keeps asking me why I rent this particular house, which is fiendishly expensive. And I said, because we love it. It's got everything our grandkids need. We're right on the water. We have a heated pool. We have a jacuzzi. We have four bedrooms, plus I have a studio. And he keeps telling me I'm paying too much. I should go somewhere else. I said, but I like it. I can afford it. What difference does it make that you think I'm paying too much? And of course, his problem was he was renting out his rental properties for about only half as much. Complaining doesn't do very much for us. If we can't take action, legitimate action, and something's not killing us, we just have to accept it. There's no logic in sitting alone and screaming. You know, there's an illogic, in fact, if you look at birds, and I watch seagulls all the time on vacation, but when there's a strong wind, you would figure that the seagulls have to flap their wings more to maintain their equilibrium, to maintain their flight pattern. But it's just the opposite. Seagulls in strong winds barely flap their wings at all because they have sufficient lift. They have sufficient airflow over their wings to create lift. Whereas when it's still and there is no wind, they have to flap their wings to create the lift. This is why planes on aircraft carriers take off into the wind and land into the wind, so they have sufficient lift. I understand it's the same thing on commercial runways. I'm no pilot, although I have flown a few airplanes, but that's the way it is. And some guy looking out his window, you know, a couple of hundred years ago and saw these gulls not flapping their wings in stormy weather, realized that if you wanted to build a successful glider, which is what they were trying to do back then, you were better off taking off into the wind and not waiting for a still day when you thought it was safer. Today, what do we do when technology goes askew? We unplug it and plug it back in. It makes no damn sense. You know, you'd think there'd be some rational explanation. But if we can just unplug it and plug it back in again, we're perfectly happy. I mean, when we have trouble with our cars, with an engine or, or something, wouldn't it be nicer just to unplug it and plug it back in again? I doubt even Tesla can do that. When you skid in your car, you hit an icy patch. 
If you want to survive, you steer into the skid. You don't try to steer out of the skid. It's counterintuitive, but that's what every professional driver will tell you to do. You steer into the skid and you regain control. I pay school taxes even though my kids went to private school. I pay school taxes today even though my kids are adults. Because I believe in paying school taxes, I'm investing in the future. I want educated kids. I want educated young adults. I want educated colleagues. I don't want to have to be paying for them on welfare. I think an investment in the schools is something we all have to do, irrespective of our private decisions or if we never have kids at all. I remember when I was in my 20s working in Princeton for a consulting firm, and as we had a growth spurt and were taking on more young people, some of the older people who had been there said, we don't see why we have to pay increased premiums in our health insurance to cover pregnancies. You know, none of us is going to get pregnant again. And we said to them, fair enough, we don't see why we should have to pay premiums for heart attacks and cancer. That ended that. Before you drive on the sand, when you want to drive over the dunes, as we do in Nantucket, you let air out of your tires. You don't put more air In your tires, which narrows the amount of grip you have on the surface, you let air out of your tires to maximize the grip and the surface level that you have tire to sand. Once you've observed anything, folks, you've changed it. I don't know if that's the Heisinger principle or what that is, and I'm too lazy to open Google right now. But scientists know this. Once you look at something, you've observed it. The famous uh, Hawthorne experiments which in management and consulting are very, very well known in New Jersey, but are bogus because it wasn't a controlled experiment. Different people were there on different days. But what they tried to to show was that when you turn the lights up brighter, people perform better. And indeed that happened. The trouble was when they turned the lights down back to where they were, people performed better too. It wasn't the brighter light, it was being watched. And so once you observe something, you begin to change it and you have to understand that. I was sitting next to a pilot once on a plane, and he was explaining what the pilot in the cockpit was doing in this uh, bad weather we were having. He explained right through the landing how he would land on one rear wheel and bring the the plane back on the other set of rear wheels and so forth. It was very instructive, and he told me, to be a pilot, you know, so I said to him, what's the most difficult thing up there? He said, you have to think three-dimensionally. Because if you want to climb from 30,000 feet to 40,000 feet, you don't just put the plane on a diagonal. He says, because while you're climbing, you're also moving forward. And so a pilot needs the ability to think three-dimensionally. It's not always as logical as you think when you draw it on a piece of paper, is it? Tlaib wrote very brilliantly about the black swan principle and the fact that nobody believed swans could be black until they saw one. And there's a lot of things that we don't believe or do believe today simply because we haven't seen evidence to the contrary. But the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. We're swayed by what we know, but not by what we don't know, and we don't know a lot. I'm not going to go back to the Johari window, you know, the Johari window, whatever that was that you learned about somewhere in freshman year in high school. The fact is that there's a lot we don't know, and we either kid ourselves and think we do, or we simply ignore it. You know, at least the ancients tried to account for it. They had gods. They had religions. And you might not agree with those religions or even current religions, but there's so much mystery in the world, people had to create something to account for it. 
An architect named Max Frisch once said that we simply use technology to try to understand the universe, which we really don't understand at all. We pretend we're masters of the universe, but we're not. Even today, we put pictures on the front page when somebody captures an underwater photo of a giant squid. They're very elusive. They're hard to find. Nobody is sure how they mate. These are gigantic creatures. They're the stuff out of true horror movies. And their natural enemy is the sperm whale, which is a mammal. And so you've got a sperm whale diving to all kinds of ridiculous depths, holding its breath for, I don't know how long, 20, 40 minutes, and then having to fight this damn thing. The celecanth, a fish that was thought to be dead 65 million years ago. That, that is not a misprint. 65 million years ago, I am not misspeaking, extinct, was found in the 1930s, <laughs> hauled up in a net by fishermen off the Comoros Islands. And when they took the damn thing, which they could not understand what it was, to a, to a couple of experts, they finally got to a level where somebody said, hey, that's a celecanth. And it's been extinct for 65 million years, although it ain't. And guess what? These, these things live in the waters off these islands in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, wherever, uh, deep down. And they're primitive fish, and they haven't changed in 65 million years. But nobody told them they were extinct. I remember the tiller man on the hook and ladder. You know, hook and ladders were these elongated fire engines from my youth. And they were so long to, to, you know, get these aerial ladders up on top of apartment houses that in narrow streets, the, the uh, engines wouldn't be able to take the turn, except they were connected like an 18-wheeler today with a cab and then hauling this trailer. And on the back of the trailer, on the back of the hook and ladder, was another guy who steered it. But to steer, if he wanted to turn right, he steered the wheel to the left because to make a right turn, he had to swing the rear of this thing to the left. Totally counterintuitive, but that's how it works. And, uh, you know, I, I used to want to be a fireman. I wanted to be the tiller man. And about a month ago, I'm driving through Newport, Rhode Island. <clears throat> and what do I see? I see a hook and ladder with a tiller man in the back. Because still, Newport has such narrow streets, they can't get conventional engines down some of them. I bought this beautiful gold watch. And uh, it's a Breitling from Bentley. And about a week later, I noticed scratches in the gold. I said, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I went to Breitling, and they said to me, it's supposed to have that happen. It's soft gold. It's supposed to get scratched, and it's a symbol of just how good the gold is. All watches get like that. And I said, oh, I knew that. We went to Morocco, to uh, Tangiers, I believe it was, and uh, we took a tour when we got there. We took a ferry over from Gibraltar, and the bus had maybe 35 people in it, something like that. And it had um, a, a young uh, Arab man, uh, probably around uh, 22, uh, missing some teeth. Uh, but he spoke six languages. And instead of having six different tours, he simply said things in several different languages. On our tour, he probably used three languages, English, French, and, and German or something. And I said to him, where did you go to school? How did you learn that? He said, oh, I just learned it from listening to people. And he spoke idiomatic English, perfect English, but the kind that you and I speak and he was uneducated, quote-unquote. We need to show our clients and our customers a different way, sometimes not one that seems logical. Everything's not analytic. Everything's not subject to spreadsheets and little boxes and addition and multiplication and division and subtraction. We have to stop trying to get better at what everyone else is already good at and be excellent at different kinds of things. 
We have to stop being commodities. We have to find a new way, chart a new course. Bentley here is my second white German shepherd following the great Koufax. And I thought white German shepherds were really rare. You had to go to a litter of German shepherds, and some would be the traditional brown and black, and one would be black, and one or two would be white. But then we found someone in the state of Washington who does nothing but breed white German shepherds. And so I thought I would take a look at that, and I found that if you separated out white German shepherds from all German shepherds, they would be the 16th most popular breed in the country. They're not rare at all. Baking soda. Yes, baking soda. Was used to what? Bake. And then it became known that it was a great refrigerator deodorizer. And Arm & Hammer baking soda had a whole new career. You open one of these, put it in your fridge, and it didn't smell like rotten fish anymore. So you may think you see the light, folks, like some of those bees, but be careful, you could die in there. It just may be a trap of your own logical making. And that is the uncomfortable truth. (laughs) 